You're listening to Things That Make You Go Woo. I'm your host, Emily, also known as Emily and Her Stars. I am a professional medium and astrologist. And when I'm not busy helping my clients, I have a passion for learning about the woo. From history to current events, interviews, and monthly energy reports, I hope this podcast makes you go woo too. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 31. Today, I am tackling one of the biggies that I've had on my list for a while. Abracadabra, Hocus Pocus, and Open Sesame. Where do these come from? Can you even wait? We're going to dig into the woo history today. I'm so excited. Now, when I say abracadabra, I'm sure all sorts of things might come to mind for you. But for most people, it's likely you're imagining a magician pulling a white rabbit out of a black hat. Why is it a rabbit and a white one at that? That's going to have to be a totally different episode, but surely these magical catchphrases I'm focusing on today, while they sound like something straight from the stage in Las Vegas, of course, the truth is much more fascinating. So let's start with the big kahuna here, abracadabra. I recently came across a story on Instagram from Lyle Eden. She has a wonderful page where she shares about Judaism and Hebrew origins. And her recent post really piqued my interest. And I'm going to share it with you in full because I absolutely loved it. Remember the magical words abracadabra? Well, they actually stem from Judaism and Hebrew. You're saying abora, I will create, kadabra, as I speak. Abracadabra means I will create as I speak. Judaism teaches us that our words create our reality. The whole concept of manifestation is what Judaism is truly all about. That our thoughts, our beliefs, our words create our reality. You see, many people mistakenly believe that prayer, which is a massive part of Judaism, is all about trying to get God to change his mind to give us what we desire. But the truth of that is that a prayer is all about firmly believing in the fact that you can create your destined reality through the words that you put out into the world through your speech. So in order to get the life that you want to get, you have to start speaking it into existence, start envisioning it, start firmly believing the fact that the power is there because God gives it to you. What? I mean, wow. Seriously, wow. It's one of my favorite origin stories for Abracadabra. I've heard it before, but not so eloquently stated. But the create what I speak is one of the foundations for essentially all of our woo movement, right? That our thoughts create our reality. What you say out loud matters. Everything in our realm is energy, and so are words. They are literally the energy of our spirit blending with our physical bodies as it becomes real through our vocal cords. Now, another option that frequents the internet about the origin of abracadabra seems a little more whitewashed to me. 
we show the use of the two words abara and kadabra in Hebrew, but that actually predates the Greeks and Romans. And wouldn't you know it, the Greeks and Romans get most of the credit. I think this lies in the fact that perhaps one of the oldest written records we have of abracadabra being used is a snippet from a Roman sage named Sirianus Samonicus. Now, Simonicus is writing in the second century, and his book is a library of medicinal purposes. In here, he documents numerous cures for common ailments, including, wouldn't you know it, the proper use for abracadabra. First, a scribe would write out the full word abracadabra on a sheet of papyrus or parchment. Remember, this isn't paper. Paper wasn't introduced until at least the 8th century. As the scribe was writing, most scribes were male. I'm sorry, I don't make the rules. (laughs) He would recite the word. Then he would write the word again, but drop a letter off at the end and pronounce it in the same way. So abracadabra became abracadabra, then abracadab, and then abracada, and so on and so forth. When the scribe was finished writing, the work would be given to the sick person who ordered it. That person would wear it as an amulet for 11 days, or the number of letters in the word abracadabra. On the last day, the sick person would presumably be cured and would dispose of the amulet. Now, what's even crazier than a magic spell that has survived for almost two millennia the fact that more often than not, it worked. It's a great example of two different phenomena, right? The first being that, of course, pre-modern culture saw words as powerful tools of magic. Language, spoken as part of magic, would be linked to objects in intrinsic ways. So by saying the word, the speaker invokes what it represents. And there's really at that point, little separation between the word and the object. While today we know abracadabra might never work, the placebo effect comes into play here. The second reason is exactly that, why it worked. It's plain and simple science. Until the mid-19th century, humans really didn't know what caused common illnesses like colds, allergies, stomach bugs. Of course, they attributed these things to all sorts of things such as the imbalance of humor and other supernatural causes. But the truth is the average cold, stomach bug, allergy, that sort of thing lasts seven to 10 days. A spell that lasts 11 days would therefore appear, appear to cure colds even though today, sadly, there still is no real remedy to get rid of them. (laughs) What's interesting is Simonicus also continues to recite further medical cures in his book, including the application of lion fat, as well as corals and saffron wrapped in cat skin. But don't worry, I'm going to skip going down that whole rabbit hole in this episode. What's interesting here is that while both origin stories sort of point in different directions, what they do share is this power to manifest. When we pray to God, the universe, source, whatever you call it, we are speaking the words of what we want to create, whether that is a healing, a salvation, a miracle, whatever. 
Believing in the power of your own words, a spell, a prayer, a healing phrase, you can see how it is quite possible that the Greeks and Romans inherited abracadabra into their own culture. Another reference in print that I will talk about is the English version dating back to around 1582. And it's found in Eva Remington Taylor's The Troublesome Voyage of Captain Edward Fenton. Here he says that they healed 200 in one year by hanging abracadabra around their necks. The belief in the power of the word lasted well into the 18th century. In his journal, of the plague year, Daniel Defoe wrote in 1772 that he was saddened by the continuing superstition of the populace when faced with the threat of the plague. He was frustrated that they seemed to be deceived by wearing charms and exorcisms and amulets in order to prepare themselves and to fortify their bodies against the plague, as if the plague had a mind of its own as if it was a possession by an evil spirit. He was frustrated that people kept signs of the zodiac and papers tied up with so many knots and certain words written on them. How the poor people found insufficiency in these things and how many of them were afterwards carried away on the carts of the dead. It's interesting that we can use this correlation into times of COVID where We may wrap ourselves in hope and in prayers and in words, but it is the true combination of science and prayer that allow us to continue. Over time, the belief in the power of abracadabra receded in and into the 19th century. It came to eventually mean fake magic. Terms like legal abracadabra were used to denote the sort of a flummoxing of juries, if you will, when lawyers would be fast talking and pull the fleece over the eyes. Stage conjurers then eventually adopted it into their inventory of magic words that they used to help punctuate their acts. And the first known usage of it in that context really dates from about 1819. Some of you may even be familiar with the killing curse from the Harry Potter books, Avada Kedavra, in which J.K. Rowling adopted the aromatic, I will destroy as I speak. Our next magical phrase, hocus pocus, has been used by conjurers for centuries. Hocus pocus is that traditional phrase of stage magicians when performing a trick, and it's part of their sort of performance to distract the audience and to prevent them from noticing the sleight of hand tricks that are being performed. It's pseudo Latin. It's really just nonsense syllables. But where do these nonsense syllables originate from is kind of up for debate. In the early years of the 17th century, Hocus Pocus was the stage name of William Vincent in the court of King James I of England, and he's even credited with writing one of the first textbooks on how to perform magic. He was one of the king's jugglers and a magician, as well as sort of a side job as a swindler and a thief, but that's another topic. It's actually believed to be a perversion of the Latin the sacramental blessing from Mass, 
Hocus corpus. This is my body. The first to make the speculation on its origin is what appears in a sermon by the Archbishop of Canterbury, John Tillotson. He writes, I will speak of one man that went about in King James' time, who called himself the King Majesty's most excellent hocus pocus, and so was called, because that at the plane of every trick he used to say, hocus pocus, tantus tabaptus, a dark composure of words to blind the eyes of the beholders, to make his trick pass the more current without discovery. Now, keep in mind, Archbishop John was not necessarily impartial in his sermon. We all know how the Protestants felt about the Holy Roman Church in the 1600s. It's entirely possible that the Archbishop himself came up with this sleight of words, hocus pocus, in order to poke fun at the Latin dogma of the church. Now, I found references to a performer in the 1620s who called himself Hocus Pocus, and it's possible he adopted it from John Tillotson, or maybe John Tillotson adopted it from him, or whichever came first, we may never know. There is another similar phrase, though, that was used by performers and jugglers later in the century in the 1670s. Hiccus doctius. Now, this does appear to be a complete corruption of the Latin hiccus doctus. Here is the learned man, which, as someone who can't juggle, is actually a pretty apt description, right? We can also compare holus bolus, which means all at a gulp or all at once, as if you were to, say, swallow a sword. So what starts to happen at this point is that people are borrowing common Latin phrases to use on audiences who generally wouldn't be familiar with the language. The phrase, this is my body, used during the consecration was spoken in Latin as hocus corpus meum. Few of the faithful would have been able to understand enough Latin to follow the details of the priest's words. And so while Latin was spoke during Catholic religious services, it wasn't until the 1960s before these words were spoken in the local language of the church instead of Latin. Now, words change with use and mispronunciation in English and in all languages is possible. It's not surprising that this process would happen, especially with words from a language spoken often, but only understood by a small portion of society. The 15th century jugglers and conjurers took a solemn phrase and gave it a new life on the streets. While the reaction of all of the priests is not necessarily recorded, we do know that Mr. John Tillotson was not a fan. <laughs> Our last and final word today is open sesame. It's a magical phrase, and most of us probably heard it for the first time in Alibaba and the 40 Thieves. In the original version, 1001 Nights, it opens the mouth of the cave in which 40 thieves have hidden a treasure. While sesame could have its origins in the Hebrew Kabbalistic word Shem Shemayim, or the name of heaven, it's actually more likely that it's connected to Babylonian magical practices, which actually used sesame oil.
History is filled with tales of Assyrian gods drinking wine made from sesame seeds before creating the earth. There are Babylonian tales about using the oil to make perfumes. And the Egyptians using it to make medicines for ceremonial purification purposes. This little seed is one of the first condiments used by humans for its nutty crunch and its oil is one of the first edible oils ever to be extracted. It's mentioned in the papyrus ebers, what is commonly referred to as the Egyptian book of medicine that was written in 1550 BC, but actually uses text that was written in 3600 to 3400 BC. According to an ancient Chinese legend from the Qing dynasty, a governor was sent to Yintai, what is present-day Japan, to find the holy medication for immortality at the request of the emperor. It was said that this magic potion combined the energy of 3,000 young men and women who were pure of spirit. The governor searched the forests and the mountains for this magical remedy, and after many years he returned with sesame seeds and asked the emperor to consume the seeds and its oils regularly for longevity. During funerals, Indians often offer vases of sesame to help their dead in the passing over to the other side. Now, what's cool about sesame seeds is that they grow in a seed pod that splits open when it reaches maturity. And the phrase open sesame possibly alludes to the opening of this pod, which unlocks the treasures that can only be used when ripe and ready for harvest. Now, magic has been invoked in many kinds of rituals and medical formulas to counteract everything from evil omens to illnesses and things that weren't understood. The ancient Mesopotamians believed that magic was the only viable defense that they had. And in order to defend themselves, they would leave offerings known as kispu in a person's tomb or in their home in hope of appeasing the person. If that failed, they sometimes also took a figurine of the deceased and buried it in the ground, demanding for the gods to eradicate the spirit or force it to leave the person alone. The ancient Mesopotamians also used magic intending to protect themselves from evil sorcerers who might place curses on them. Black magic as a category didn't exist in ancient Mesopotamia, and a person legitimately using magic to defend themselves against illegitimate magic would use exactly the same techniques. The only major difference was the fact that curses were enacted in secret, whereas a defense against sorcery was conducted in the open in front of an audience if possible. One ritual to punish a sor sorcerer was known as the burning where the person viewed as being afflicted by witchcraft would create an effigy of the sorcerer and put it on trial at night. Then, once the nature of the sorcerer's crimes had been determined, the person would burn the effigy and thereby break the sorcerer's power over them. They also performed magic rituals to purify themselves of the sins committed unknowingly. One such ritual was known as the serpa or burning in which the caster of the spell would transfer the guilt of all their misdeeds onto various objects around the house, such as dates, an onion, 
a tuft of wool. <laughs> the person would then burn the objects and thereby, thereby purify themselves of all the sins that they had or might have unknowingly committed. A whole genre of love spells even existed. Such spells were believed to cause a person to fall in love with another person, restore love that had faded, or cause a male sexual partner to be able to sustain an erection while he had previously been unable. Other spells were used to reconcile a man with his patron deity or to reconcile a wife with a husband who had been neglecting her. There really is no end to the amount of magic that the Mesopotamians believed in. And as one of the first and foremost sources of our current culture and how it has influenced throughout time, I can't help but notice the similarity in the idea of abracadabra and speaking that which I want to create. I hope that as you continue through your days, you bring a little more abracadabra, a little more hocus pocus, and a whole lot of open sesame into all of your lives. Have a great one, everybody, and thanks for listening. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Be sure to head over to emilyandherstars.com for more information about this episode, show notes, photos, and links to all of my current offerings. If you're kind enough to leave a positive rating and review, send me a screenshot and I'll give you 15% off your next session. Thanks so much and have a wonderful, woo-filled day. Bye-bye.